A Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Dr Carl has been named one of Australia's national living treasures. He's a qualified medical doctor, engineer, physicist and mathematician. He consistently appears on the list of most trusted Australians, an influential position given his wide-ranging and ever-present media career. Dr Carl is also a prolific author. I read his wonderful book, Vital Science. It reminded me all over again of the gift he has of being able to answer difficult and complex questions. So, Carl, your film that you've chosen is the 1995 Oscar classic, The Usual Suspects. Tell me about it. Um, I knew nothing about it. I was asking somebody what film to watch, you know, whether it was good, and they said, I'll try this one. So I went down to the video store, you remember that, and hired it. And I had the reaction, which many other people was, that when you get to the end of the video, you go back to the beginning and you watch it again. So you watched it twice? Yeah. And who did you watch it with? Were My you, wife. You're right. And were you, were you boozed up, no. smoking drugs, or just no. stone cold sober? What, and did she watch it twice as well? Yeah. Right. See, the thing about that movie is that it has really good script writing. Now, you know about movies, how in the average movie, you'll think, oh, God, I know what's going to come next, right? In the average, in the usual suspects, you don't know what's going to come next. And in the average movie, there'll be three, oh, my God, moments. And one, which they get out of, yep. and then one Jesus Christ moment where you think they can't possibly get out of this, but they do, and then you come to a nice resolution. It's a standard formula. And this didn't have any of that. It had really clever script writing, and the very beginning made sense kind of until you got to the end of the movie, and then you suddenly thought, oh, it's got a different level. And you go watch it, and you go watch the whole movie again, and then suddenly you see it at a different level. And I thought that was just wonderful script writing. And it's kind of wonderful that besides spending millions of dollars uh, on actually making the movie, they also spent maybe fifty or a hundred or two hundred thousand on the script writers. So so the, the Writers Guild of America, bizarre statistic for you. Lay it on me, man. It's they they are it is the thirty-fifth best film script ever written. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which is in the top 100. I had no idea. <laughs> there you go. No, really? it, it's a sensational film. Wonderful cast. But I tell you this, you know, Kaiser Soze is oh. verbal. There are people, If you, so I went back and watched it again in ah, your honour. So you had, oh, oh, you watched it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But how was it after a gap of several years? Well, well it, it's weird watching it for this, because I, I, I read too much about it that I wish I hadn't, ah. where, where there are people to this day who say that Kevin Spacey isn't Kaiser Soze. I've I've been in that argument, yeah. Yeah, and you go, oh my god! So I so the reveal that I've accepted for the last twenty years until mm-hmm. I'm interviewing you now, I'm told, might not be the reveal. It could be Peter Postlethwaite, or it even could be Gabriel Byrne. Uh, I thought Peter Postlethwaite might be a possible the driver guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and did you hear the story that Gabriel Byrne apparently? Which was, one was he? Was he the so, short, so, chunky it, cop? Uh, no, no, he, he's the handsome bloke who's shot with, with, with the dark, the Irish actor with the with the, the dark hair handsome, mm-hmm. haggard-looking bloke. Uh, and, and 
when they were filming it, the director, whose name I've immediately forgotten, um, uh, didn't tell the actors who was Kaiser Soze. Ah. And he, because he was the big star, was mightily hacked off at the end when it wasn't him. Ah. So he had a stand-up row with the director going, bloody hell, I've been filming this thing, thinking, so Spacey got the Oscar. But that was also for his acting as well. Oh, no, no, totally. But, oh, but, yeah. but, as in, but he, in, in terms of that film being released and you're an actor, you go, well, so at the end of the day... It's me, really. And you go, sorry, Gabriel. It's not. Because Kevin Spacey, ignore the stuff that's happened recently, uh, unfortunately, but, but then he was an unknown actor. This was his big breakout role. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Fabulous. So your film, mate, is a, a story about a made-up story in the past. Yeah. And your book is a made-up story about the future. You've chosen... Wow, uh, what a segue. Yeah. Audience, audience, you have just got to sit back Nigel, you rock totally. You're in the presence of greatness. Oh, you are. You are. So, I, I love a good segue and you've just done it magnificently. Herwald Olsen in 1954 yeah. wrote Thunderbolt of the Spaceways. Dr. Carl, tell me about it. Well, I was a lonely kid at school because uh, I was um, not an Irish Catholic like everybody else was at the Catholic school. I was from Europe. And so I sort of retreated into reading books. And Wollongong Library had a wonderful library and librarians. I still see libraries as the light in the darkness. Right. And so I went in there and I sort of read this and that and I read through the Just William series and then I discovered fairy tales of the world and I worked my way through maybe 150 books. I actually ordered extra ones in for me. Each book was a compendium of the fairy tales of that nation, Afghanistan, Zambezi. And Bobuja. how old were you when this was going on? Oh, eight or nine. And you'd sit in the library or you'd take them I'd home? I'd take them home. Take them home, I'd, right? Well, I, I got into the habit of reading about one book a day. Uh, and I, I learned, I accidentally taught myself how to speed read fairly early, which has a disadvantage where you don't pick up all the subtleties. Right. And so I could read a book in an hour where you don't pick up all the subtleties. I realise that. Um, and I actually stopped uh, reading science fiction when I was 32 because I started studying medicine. Right. And the body of knowledge I had to shove into my brain was so great, I couldn't afford to waste, in inverted commas, air quotes, a whole hour a day just reading. And so I worked my way through the fairy tales of the world, I was amazed by how similar and different they were. There were common themes. So is, there it, were is Thunderbolts a fairy tale? Or and then, yeah, and, and then I went over into the science fiction mob because they were just sort of, I'd, run, I'd read every fairy tale of every country right. in the world. There are only 150 or something. And I was just drifting through and I, I picked up this science fiction book and it was Thunderbolt of the Spaceways and I immediately fell into it. It was sort of your classic space opera. So it wasn't fantasy. It was people in rockets, uh, usually males, um, riding around through the galaxy, ignoring the laws of physics and having <laughs> adventures. In the 21st century. Yeah. 22nd century, yeah. Yeah. And um, I fell in love with science fiction at that moment. And I suddenly realised that what the uh, I've been prepared for was by the you know, fairy tales of the world. And I've been a fan of science fiction ever since because it tells you things about the future and it opens your mind up. Now, it's very difficult, you know, to make predictions, especially about the future, but this was just a lovely one uh, and it was nice and friendly and they just went around having adventures and I, I remember because my very first one and I, I came across it about eight years later when I was in my mid-teens or something and it wasn't as good But and by then I was into sort of really very, very different types of science fiction as well, including one science fiction book written by a Frenchman, where you just got a box and the pages were in random order. Wow. 
Yeah, and um, it it kind of made sense. The the way he'd written each page, it wasn't a very thick book. Uh, you could make sense out of it, and and most of the ways you'd read it, just reading pages at random, you get some sort of sense out of it, and that was wonderful. So I've always been a big fan of science fiction, yeah. um, although. I certainly missed out. I, I did see the internet coming a long way because I was talking about that way in the past. I completely missed the one about how important texting would be. Remember how <laughs> texting was really and is still very important? I really, I, I didn't ever think that you'd want to text somebody rather than talk to them. But once you see it and the usefulness of it, you then appreciate how you can't tell everything in the future. So I love Thunderbolt of the Spaceways because to me as a pre-pubescent kid, it just opened my world up to this universe. So there wasn't just the Earth. There wasn't just New South Wales. There wasn't just Wollongong. There was the whole of planet Earth and all the other planets in our solar system and in our galaxy and other galaxies. I told you they broke the laws of physics. It's okay. And, And do you own a copy of it? Oh, not now. Because it's, it's actually quite a valuable thing. If really? It, yeah, an original original copy um, is actually quite a valuable thing to have. So I was, I was wanting to ask you, yeah. Wow. No, all I've got is a meteor. <laughs> Listen, we're going to go 20 years in the future in to the your future. song. Oh. So you've chosen a track off uh, Little Feet's third studio album, Dixie Chicken. Oh, I love Little Feet. Yeah. Oh, my. So can, can I a, a confession? Yeah. I had never heard of them, and I spent about four hours down a rabbit hole. Uh, the piano. Oh. Uh, who, who is the, the pianist? It's just sensational. I don't know who their names, but... Uh, the way I came across them was that I had a mate who was a hippie living up at Dorigo. Right. And he was lucky in the sense that he had wealthy maiden aunts die, <laughs> right. leaving him a large sum of money in sequence. Yeah. And so he didn't have to work. And as a result, he had jet black hair until really late in life. <laughs> and he just sort of lay, and he did whatever he wanted. He, he was a, a really clever guy, much smarter than me, and he would read all sorts of stuff. And he was telling me how he d- designed this recording studio. Now, designing and building a recording studio where you actually have to build the amplifiers and solder them up and then get the integrated circuits and do all that sort of stuff is not a trivial task. And they said, uh, oh, look, uh, see how you're here. This is up at Byron Bay. Can you go and um, pick up this guy for the airport for us? And it was one of the people from Little Feet. No way. Yeah, and I said, who are Little Feet? And he said, you haven't heard of Little Feet? And they're sort of like one of the seminal bands that you should have as part of your background and then move on from. So you know Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin? Oh, let me tell you my Jimmy Page story, but go on, yes. So he asked, what's your favourite band? Yeah. Little Feet. You're kidding. No. Would I kid about such a serious topic? Oh, well, keeping it serious, yeah, and you'll appreciate this, um, I was at, uh, I've been in the media for a little while, and I was at Channel 9 uh, doing some other stuff when the Zeppelin were doing a show there. Right. And I, so they were setting up in the studio, blah, 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 and then it was all set up, and then one of the roadies from Channel 9 touched his guitar, and he said, and I was there, hey, man, don't touch my axe. <laughs> and and that for me was such a good lesson because I do shows where I go out and talk to people uh, on stage and I'm, and I've also been a roadie for people like Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, yeah. uh, Chuck Berry only once, and I've really appreciated where the boundary lies. Right. Like I won't touch their equipment, but they don't touch my equipment. You don't touch my computer, man. Now, mate, we are it, it, interviewing you is like herding cats on oh, acid. Sorry. Get back to the track, <laughs> the man. Track. Okay, on so- the way down from the third studio oh. album, tell me about why you've chosen that song. Okay, well, staying on topic by going off topic, I have a bewilderment field. So in the same way that some people have a charisma field and you think, 
oh, ne- Nigel is great. I'll give him my wallet and just worship him and everything. But, <laughs> yeah, like Steve Jobs had a charisma feel. <laughs> I've got a bewilderment feel, so I'll just look at the world around me and just get entirely distracted by anything at a moment's notice. You don't say. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> it took a while to learn this, but what they say is true. The same people you meet on the way up, you meet on the way down, and that's just one of many reasons to be kind to everybody at all times. Besides but, just the straight, it'll be good for you when you're, you're lying pregnant in the gutter in King's Cross and asking for $2 for a cup of coffee. Besides that, it's also the right thing to do. Yeah, and the wonderful first line of the lyrics, since the beginning it hasn't changed yet. Is yeah. It's part of you. So tell me, is this because you have met total ass hats who were horrible to you and then you saw them on the way down? Have you got examples of people who now a slightly shamed face because you are who you are. No, and, uh, no, 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 no. It's because of the sort of the searing guitar work. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great oh, track, isn't man, it? man, what yeah. they do with that guitar and the drum. Each little feat song is like a little gem put together. I don't know why they're not more famous, um, but the, I was so glad that I was introduced to them. So, but that is a really good message, though. Yeah. Um, and what happened to your mate in Dorigal? Oh, um, prostate cancer. Oh, that was a bit of down. Now back to the cheery stuff. <laughs> and and what, what was your what was your mate called? What was his name? Damien Davis. And 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 it took him early, did it? Uh, no, later in life. But it, it, one thing I learned as a medical doctor is we've all got to die. But what what matters, what counts, is that you have a good death. Yes. You know, so you'd get your will in order. You have a really big party where you tell everybody you love them, and then you wake up dead the next morning mm. without any pain. Yeah, that, that's a good death. So my, my dad, uh, unfortunately, God love him, he, he had 10 years. One of the questions uh, I'd probably ask you on another show, on one mm. of your fabulous shows where you answer all these complex questions, is he had Parkinson's and dementia and had a horrible 10 years. For, Parkinson's for, and dementia? Yeah, it... L- Louis body dementia, which goes wow. with, yeah. So I'm, I was going to ask you, in fact, fuck it, I will. Yeah. Um, do you think there will be a cure found for either of those conditions and when? Uh, there will be a cure found. It won't come from pure research into the topic. Pure research into the topic is teaching us about the topic, but also teaching us how to treat it better. But the long-term cure, the prevention, will come completely out of left field. Let me give you an example. With regard to medicine, there's scientific papers written, and some of them are really applied, like how to better treat asthma or type 2 diabetes or chronic myeloid leukemia. And then there's this pure research, like looking at type 15 sodium potassium pumps, and you can't think of what they're related to. According to the National Institute of Health in the USA, after 10 years, one third of the papers that seem completely useless, you know, the pure research papers, are now being quoted in a patent. Right. So you do the pure research and then the field expands and somebody says, oh, we really need to understand the type 15 sodium potassium pump and then suddenly it comes in. So I do reckon we'll find a cure, but um, I'm, I'm following with when? I'm following the old rule of uh, overestimate in the short term and underestimate in the long term. Right. So I'm going to say 50 years, maybe even 100 because... The body's going to fight us because it's got its own life and DNA and the cancer has got its own life and the Parkinson's disease will have its own life and it'll just try and fight us. So 50 to 100 years, and it might even be longer. So I'm going to come on to now your fourth choice. Yeah, which is your place. 
uh, and we're coming up to date. Mm-hmm. You've chosen the dinner table. Now, I have to ask you, is there a particular table itself, an item, or is it any table you happen to be sitting at with your family? Because you mentioned it's your, the family dinner table. It's both. Um, Describe this... the table before you go off on a tangent about US research in the 1930s. <laughs> it was... Wasn't it amazing, though, that there was a CIA that funded <laughs> Jackson Pollock and brought the uh, literary and artistic blooming in the 60s and 70s as a way of fighting the Soviet advantage in the cultures? Did you read that? Uh, I, I didn't read that. That's, isn't that amazing? If it's true... I've been reading a few papers about it in the New York. It's Yorker. an amazing ish, but what's getting more amazing topic, is your description the of okay. the table. So this table, <laughs> uh, it was it came from a tree called in Australia. We call it a widow maker, uh, which is oh, the, I've got one in my front garden. Yeah, the absolutely. river red gum. Oh, yeah, huge yeah, thing. That, yeah, yeah. And they just drop a branch with no warning, and suddenly there's a five ton branch landing on you, and hence the term widow yes. maker. So a mate of mine went and drove over to South Australia. Uh, to pick up far, uh, no, 13 slabs of timber of river red gum that were chopped down 130 years ago. Right. And then brought them back in his trailer, which burned out a bearing coming up over the Blue Mountains. And then we uh, turned it into a table. And so first he's got a lovely history, and it's just one big slab about... And, and when was it? How long has it, you've had it in your house? Oh, 15, 20 years now. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, it's, a, just a, it's just one big slab um, we brought two of them. And then the second thing is uh, there's this concept of the family togetherness thing. Yeah. And I like it because uh, you should talk with your family and be with your family. I mean, it's really important to know your past and your dead relatives and all that sort of stuff. But the more you know about them, the more it reinforces that life is for the living. There's a saying in medicine that touches upon that, which is the patient is the one with the disease. So if you're treating somebody with something tragic... You do the best you can, but you don't get too emotionally involved because you can't do a good job and you'll just get burnt out. And, and, and in, in the, the, this is not a joke, but in, in the Burns unit, the people do get burnt out from the terrible things that happen to the kids and what they have to do to them. So getting back to the dinner table. So life is for the living. You, you've and, got and, three and, kids, yeah? Yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. three. And, and, and spending time with your family and extended friends is just, just a wonderful thing. And for some reason, we humans have done this ridiculous thing where we show that we love each other by eating. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love you, Nigel. Let's go and have a big meal. Yeah. You're thinking, what's the relationship, except it's the way we do it in humans. And I think it's partially related to the fact that we humans have only got one thing going for us, our brain, uh, in terms of predators on the planet. And so we can't fight very well. Our claws are pretty hopeless. Our teeth can't rip very well. We can't run very fast, et cetera, et cetera. But what we've got is strength through numbers. And for some reason, that seems to be brought together the way we've evolved by eating together. Do, do your kids still live at home? Uh, only one. The, but we, for example, went through it yesterday where they all came around for dinner, wonderful. for lunch. And we had a wonderful lunch together. And, and things come out that you didn't know would come out in a more relaxed environment as opposed to, hi, how are you going for a cup of coffee, then vanish again? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and do you have a routine where you try, so it's Sunday yesterday, do you, do you try yeah. and do a Sunday meal with your family or? Uh, we try to, well, I have a meal with my wife and uh, one daughter every night and the, the routine also includes doing the dreaded crossword. Not the cryptic, not smart enough for that. But still. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and your your family, amazing, amazing backstory that I was reading about in the weekend is is this something that your parents did when you were a kid, as, as in the, the family uh, valued the family meals or was it too hectic and whatever? The exact opposite. I was a rat bag. 
Ah, okay. Ah, yes, the same people you meet on the way up, you meet them on the way down. So I sort of got bullied at school out of speaking Polish and then gradually drifted away from my parents because they spoke Kids in can it. be shits, can't oh. they? I, I mean, I mean I, but they've, they've got to be moulded by their parents into yeah. the right form. But yeah, and, and so I drifted away from them and I regret it now and I've tried to make sure that I'm not doing that again with my kids and hopefully that'll pass on the good message down the line. No, in, in my life, my... my parents were a little bit uh, they were just gorgeous and wonderful but they weren't big praisers that the worst sin is, oh. is to be is you know if you say Nigel was good at something then he might you know, get tickets on himself mm. so uh, I with my children have completely overcompensated well so, you praise them for being able to get uh, up in the morning and still be alive so, so I, I, I've had a routine where I tuck my kiddies up in bed my, my elder son Alex and how say, old is he well, well now he's 24 but at the time yeah. and I say and I have a little, this little speech when I say listen Alex you know you're a lovely fella dad loves you very much you can do anything you want in life if you try hard he goes yeah yeah dad I've heard it all before so I overpraise you so it's, it's almost like we don't sort of relive the sins of our parents we almost like invert them well maybe in that case if you want your kids to do A then do anti-A. That's it. If you want them to become a fundamentalist Zoroastrian, yeah. pick the exact opposite or vice versa. Well, so here's a challenge for you, Carl. Yeah. So, so one of my favourite quotes yeah. is, today only has value because tomorrow is uncertain. Hang on. Today... Only has value because tomorrow is uncertain. So if you could tell me that where how my uh, life was going to was going to progress, and I'm going to you know I'm going to die at 83, and this is going to uh, happen, right? Then you've taken the value out of my life because I know I know the plot. I, uh, I, I get up every, every day. So I wonder, with your insatiable, infectious, really appealing curiosity, is do you think there's any value in in mystery in in not knowing stuff? As in, do you know what we could we could spend lots of time finding out how X works, or you could just sit there with that, you know, that word numinous and look at it and go, I don't really know why the sky is pink, but it looks sodding gorgeous and that's good enough for me. Ah. Oh, I go for both. It's a vote, of, it's a vote for ignorance from Nigel. I do well, apologise. No, I, I do like mystery and there's a need for mystery and not knowing what's going to happen next because it's just so delicious. Yes. And there's also the joy that comes from knowing something so that now that I understand how a rainbow forms, I can then walk down the street and if I see a neighbour bordering their lawn or if I'm at the beach and I can see a wave breaking with little right, droplets. Right, you're looking I, for the rainbow. I, I know exactly where to look for the rainbow. So I draw a line between the sun and my in the back of my head and then extend that line forward, and then I look 42 degrees off to the left and right and above, and at 42 degrees I should see the red colour of a rainbow, and at 39 degrees I should see the blue. And the, the advantage is that I find extra rainbows. And the other thing is that by always looking, you find things you don't know, and then you find explanations. So there was this weird thing where the extended superfamily has an Easter dinner in or Easter lunch in Centennial Park, and for two years running... On each of those Easter Sundays, there were three suns in the sky. Right. Three. And I'd never, I, I, I'd vaguely seen them, but not very well. And then on a first Easter Sunday, there was a sun in the sky. And then at 22 degrees off to one side and 22 degrees off the other side, there was an almost as bright sun. So you look up in the sky and you think, there's three goddamn suns in the sky. What the hell? And they're called sun dogs. Look it up in Wikipedia. And then the next year it happened again and it hasn't happened since. So do you remember the kids' cartoon, The Numbskulls? Oh, no, not familiar with that door. So it's a wonderful cartoon where, where it, it, <laughs> the, 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 the devices in your head, there are little, little, little people running around doing things. 
So, oh. so, so there's there's people sort of winding your tongue out. There's people, you know. So the numbskulls, I, the numbskulls. So, so I'm just looking at you, thinking the poor numbskulls in your head go, "Oh my god, he's off on one again, running around getting a file, getting whatever else." So I'm going to bring you, unfortunately, to the fifth and last choice, uh-huh. which is your um, your possession, which is suitably scientific and on trend. It's the solar panels on your roof. Yes. Tell me about that, mate. Well, there was an election where somebody who was the Prime Minister of Australia made the following sentence. Um, the trouble with solar panels is that they you never get back the energy that it costs to make them in their 10 years of life. Was that Kevin? No, that was John Howard. Oh. And that's wrong in two ways. Firstly, their life is not 10, it's 25. And at 25 years, they're guaranteed to give 80% of their output. And if they don't, you get another set. And number two, um, the energy payback time for solar cells is um, depending on the local cloud cover, which varies between f- fifth, uh, sorry, 18 months in Sydney and Perth up to about 44 months in Brussels. So no matter where you are in the world, after 44 months, less than four years, you've got back the energy that it costs to make them, and then the remaining 20-plus years are all for free at no cost to the planet. And they just sit there with no moving parts. Now, uh, Have I've, you had to replace them, or you've got the, the same originals? Same originals. They're, they're not as efficient as the new ones, um, and they're not as effective in turning sunlight into electricity in low light levels, but they're still going. We only had one problem where... One of the tradies did a bad solder joint um, and we had to have that fixed. And the other problem was that the inverter died uh, after seven years. And the other problem uh, in inverted commas is that uh, when we got it, it was one of the 10 biggest arrays domestically in all of Australia, 4.7 kilowatts. And it cost us about $45,000. And today that'd cost you about five. But the advantage of me paying 45000 for what you pay 4000 is that you owe me. Yes. Because for every doubling in the volume, in the number of solar panels made, the price goes down by about 10 or 15%. So because I was an early adopter, I made it possible for other people to get it later. Yeah. Um, and so if anybody wants to give me a free cup of coffee, I'll, I'll, I'll consider the bill paid. But it doesn't matter. You don't have to pay it anyway. And so now I'm sort of tossing up with the uh, battery thing, when to go into that. Um, and this whole energy thing, it relates back to global warming. And I first came across it back in the early 1970s. Right. I started reading a magazine called The New Scientist, which was not like the New Age Scientist, but rather actually it was just a, sci- a straight science magazine. And um, in 1973, Munich Re, the world's largest reinsurance company, s- recognised global warming or climate change, or back then they called it the greenhouse effect, and they started factoring it in to their insurance premiums in 1973. It took the climate scientists till 1989 to recognise that global warming or the greenhouse effect was real and that we caused it and it was going to get messy. Uh, And for about a year and a half, the big fossil fuel companies did nothing. And they sort of tossed up, and if you, you go to the um, New York Times and read the emails from Exxon, and they sort of argued among themselves. They said, look, mate, it's quite clear. Global warming is real. The scientists are yep. dead right as there. Uh, and it's going to cause warming of the planet and all sorts of bad things. Uh, what will we do? And option one was to go risky. 
uh, and to say, look, we don't know where we're going to go, we're going to move into renewable energies or other things that don't involve carbon, but we'll find out what they are. And the other option, option two, was BAU business as usual combined with a very well-funded cover-up campaign. Yeah. Got to be option two, mate. They went for option two. (laughs) Um, Why are you surprised? Every time, head in the sand, hope over strategy. Well, we're going to uh, pay for it. Like already we're seeing an increase in the number of extreme weather events. So the amount of energy that's being trapped by carbon dioxide each day is equivalent to the heat energy of exploding 400,000 Hiroshima bombs. What a lovely legacy we're leaving our grandchildren. Sure. I've got a mate who has invested in... uh, leading-edge technology, wearable solar panels. Wow. Amazing. So, so you're, you're famous for your shirts, or amongst other things. Oh, well. Where, where what, this technology, which it's, it's very nascent, where the, it doesn't exist yet, but what they're saying is, can you imagine if a baseball, an ordinary baseball cap doesn't look any bloody different, your shirt doesn't look any different, my T-shirt any different, but whilst we're sitting outside in the pub garden... It's generating electricity. And charging up your electronic device or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe there's a portable uh, storage thing that then you plug back at home and it, and it does, goes into the national grid. Yeah. Um, mate, you are such a fascinating uh, kooky. Can I say kooky? Is kooky a word? Oh, you're too kind. Uh, too, too kind, I, I, okay. Uh, <laughs> you left out bewildered, but yes. <laughs> and your, your bewildered field, I hope, I hope my... bewilderment field. I hope my interrupting field hasn't uh, confused <laughs> your bewildering field. But you have just been a delight to be on Five of My Life, and I have to ask you the most important question. Yeah. Who shall I get on next? Oh, have you had Adam Spencer on? No. Okay, get him. Eddie Wu. No, no, oh. no, I haven't. Oh, actually, I've got a whole... Oh, Alice Williamson. Alice Williamson. Alice Williamson her, is a chemist, lecturer at the University of Sydney, and she's coming up with this remarkable way of getting drugs at really, really low prices, manufactured really, really cheaply for people who can't afford them. You are a legend. Thank you so much for coming on Five oh, of My Life. Oh, you're too kind, Dr. Dr. Carl, and, and good luck with the book, Vital Science, an absolute... Classic read. Oh, you too kind. Oh, we're doing the handshake over the edge. Thank you, Dr. Nigel. You're too kind of very smart. What very a nice legend he is. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Five of My Life on Apple Podcasts.